Hello and welcome to this very first episode of our New Era podcast, uh, where Emma and I are starting Mind the Gap, working with Haringey Education Partnership, which we're very excited about. And our very first guest is Leka Sharma. Hello, welcome. Hi, how are you doing? And, and thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, I mean, we are too. We, we've been trying to get you on our podcast for a while now. So you'll feel like you're like hot property. And we're, I'm very pleased that we managed to do it. <laughs> I'm glad we finally managed to make it work. <laughs> and Emma, how are you? We're, here we are again in our new show, but it's the same but different. Yeah, I'm really excited actually, and I'm slightly giddy that we've got Lake on because I've got lots of things to ask her. And like she was saying just off there, it's twice this week I've had the luxury of her company, so I shall be looking forward to chatting. And it's great to be working with um, Haringey as well. So we shall see how this one pans out, Mr. Sherrington. <laughs> I know, I'm excited. I mean, Haringey is actually the borough where I live. It's in a borough in North London, and that the office for Haringey Education Partnership is about five minutes walk from my house it's kind of so it's so interesting that they're, they're nearby but they also do um work with loads of primary schools uh, and secondary schools uh, supporting their, their development professional development leadership curriculum uh, it's, it's brilliant so i'm really chuffed that they're helping us with with our podcast spreading the word <laughs> so okay let, let's do the big book show <laughs> Oh, Tom, I've not got one. I've got two. Oh, <laughs> I've got both. I, it's funny because I, I, I think of the curriculum book that Laker wrote. We talked about that previously on, a, on, on when you do one of our masterclasses for a curriculum. But I, I've been mainly focusing on, on the, your amazing Building Culture book, a handbook to harnessing human nature to create strong school teams. It's, it's a great it's a great theme. So, Laker, we've got lots of listeners um all over the place and uh, tell people a bit about yourself and, and kind of what kind of work you're currently doing. Yeah, sure. Um, so I am a primary school teacher and leader by trade. Um, and currently I'm a school improvement lead for the Avanti Schools Trust um, and I lead on curriculum and assessment. Um, and also kind of fascinated by all things. I think curriculum was my first kind of passion and through that work and through the leadership journey I've been on now I'm just um, like really fascinated with culture um you know how we can how support our teams within our schools and and what that means for the lived experiences of teachers that we lead so yeah that's a bit about me but I think one of the things I'm uh, most passionate about is bringing together kind of research and practice and how we can make that really tangible and um and accessible to both teachers and leaders and you also Right, uh, uh, an excellent blog, which, and, and you've got your Twitter is called Teacher Feature. So, what's that? What, how have you been doing that? Um, I've been doing that for a while now, actually. Yeah, it's Teacher Feature 2 because one was taken, obviously. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> like the second one. <laughs> I'm, I'm number two. Um, but yeah, it's I've been doing that for a while. And again, it's just kind of like my thoughts, my reflections, uh, my own kind of craft experience and, and personal uh, thinking around leadership and school improvement. And yeah, it's kind of where I just uh, lay down all my thoughts and just put it out there, really. So, I mean, so, go on, you, Emma's bursting. You've got so no, many questions. I was just going to, I'm just bursting to ask later about this book here. So, but you carry on. I shall ask you in a minute. <laughs> so was I. We, so we're fighting already. <laughs> fighting for airtime. Fight, fight, fight. <laughs> well, the book, the book is, a, is, a, is a classic kind of, like can I say, a classic Ollie Cav in, uh, informed design. Mm -hmm. So it's got, this, it's got this really, you've got lots of contributors and you, you essentially you, you've got um, a number of different types of culture and, and 
and I, and I find that sort of organizing of ideas really, really helpful because the culture is a bit of a, well, what is it? You know, <laughs> I, I remember doing an MA uh, in a master's in education in the 90s, which I never finished, by the way. So I never actually got it because I, I, I got a new job and couldn't finish it. But I did all the theory and mm -hmm. culture was being talked about then, Charles Handy. And, and, and I was fascinated by it then. So, but I always found it quite hard to get into. And now you've got a whole different sorts of range, culture of psychological safety, of purpose, trust, conversation. So talk us through some of your your, th your thought process for getting to those sort of, that kind of that categorization. Did you invent it or did you pick it from somewhere? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. I think a lot of it was kind of just my hypotheses as a leader and thinking, well, actually, these are the things, you know, lessons learned from my own experiences as a leader that I feel have really helped in um, creating positive changes in the schools that I was working with or working with really inspirational leaders that were kind of instilling these cultures um, and in the team that I was working in. Um, and in terms of kind of how I got to the, the different strands of culture, I think a lot of them were um, ideas that have been really popular in organizational psychology in more recent years. So things like psychological safety, um, which, you know, Amy Edmondson at the moment is doing a lot of work around that and has become really, really popular um, discussion point. Things that are potentially not as explored um, in the world of education, but, uh, you know, are really popular elsewhere that I thought, actually, that's something that I feel we could really bring into the world of school improvement and school leadership. Um, and then, yeah, other ones were things that I think are just quite tricky things to pin down, like trust. That, that That's really hard. That's, a you know, in reality, that's really tricky to get right. And so I wanted to, and, you know, in the book, it kind of only touches the surface, really, but bring some of those strands to light that are just really tricky for leaders to kind of navigate. Um, so I thought about what are the kind of themes around culture that I would have loved to have known about or been aware of earlier on in my own leadership journey that might support other leaders who are maybe new to leadership or thinking about developing their own leadership. Wow. So, it's, so I mean, it, it's it's a clever a range of things. And I mean, you could call them, how many are there? Six or seven? My brain is sort of scanning very well. I mean, I'm looking back to, to check right now. Yeah, it's seven. It's, it's uh, seven in total. Yeah. So seven. This would be this, 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 the Sharma seven. <laughs> seven dimensions of culture. We, we, we've, we've coined it here. The culture heptagon. <laughs> well, there you go. Brilliant. I love it. I love we're bringing primary maths into this, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> any excuse, any excuse, Laker. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm going to let Emma ask the next question, but I'm dying to just almost like rip into every single one of them because it's they're all so interesting. But Emma, Emma what's, your, what, what's your first question? For, no, Emma? my first, it was not necessarily about the contents of the book. It was how you kind of came to the book, as in what was going on that made you think, right, there's a really need to pull this all together and talk about it how did, did you kind of arrive at the at the book itself really yeah that's a great question I mean I, I beforehand I was a you know a big my big interest was curriculum and curriculum leadership and curriculum development and I got to the stage where I'd I'd written curriculum to classroom um I was really engaged in the work of curriculum development both at kind of school level and, and trust level in in various roles um and I started thinking 
actually there's a prerequisite here before we get the curriculum piece right before we get pedagogy assessment all of that nitty-gritty stuff right without these conditions in place it's really hard to kind of get that positive change within your school to have that sustained school improvement over time um and I kind of thought no no no, I need to kind of take it a step back and we need to think about culture in those conditions um and there's like notoriously little you know it's very thin on the ground when it comes to research around educational leadership um more recently there's been some really really exciting and cool stuff coming out you know professor co and the work from evidence-based education but generally speaking there's very little out there um and so i kind of stopped and thought hold on maybe there's something i can add to the conversation here even if it is just um bringing some strands to life that can allow leaders to have an awareness even that just that awareness or just something to get the conversation going around culture and teams and getting the conditions right particularly in light of all this the kind of the the larger educational landscape around recruitment and retention and wanting to keep teachers in the profession like how as leaders can we impact that within our own schools um, so that we can have a kind of healthier uh, national picture when it comes to teachers wanting to be in the profession and feeling like they are fulfilled in their roles and feeling like it's something that's sustainable over time. So that's kind of how I, I got to it. And now I guess I'm thinking about those two things in tandem. So how do we get that curriculum development, the the robust nature of you know wanting to get a really great curriculum provision in a school alongside getting those conditions right and that is really really tricky stuff um and currently doing some research around that that I'm really interested to see how it pans out over the next year that's kind of what's led me to this point it's really interesting it's like that conversation we're having the other day about are you ready for curriculum because it's like you're not quite ready for the curriculum conversation unless this is all embedded, first of all, because it, the curriculum can't breathe without the kind of the, the oxygen that the culture gives it, really. I, I come across this all the time. So this is, you know, you're really getting into some important areas because, so for example, what, what I find it a lot, because I go into schools and talk to teachers and say the head of Key Stage 2 or the head of maths, mm-hmm. and what they say about the way they feel in the school is sometimes not exactly how the head and the, the senior leaders feel that they, they they've set things up. And it's just about, you know, the decision-making. Um, so, you know, an SLT has this sort of really rich discussion about something, and then they sort of walk out the door and tell everybody <laughs> what's happening. And then other people go, well, hang on a minute, what, what, where's this come from? And it's just that kind of communication gap. Yeah. And sometimes perceptions of, of of like what culture. So people will say, oh, we've got a real kind of open door culture here and all that kind of stuff. But actually, when you're in the lesson and you walk into a teacher's room, the, the, the yikes, the palpable the kind of tensing up. And so, so sometimes I, I, I so all this is really interesting. And it seems to be about accountability and that need for people to, you know, to have standards and be demanding of people mm. versus that the you know that tipping into well you talk about psychological safety people feeling that they've got to kind of dance a dance and can't say can't can't be against things and so on so what what do you re- recommend to leaders how do leaders know how what the truth is on the ground if, if when they only have their own perspective 
Yeah, it's a really good point because I think that perception gap can be really deceiving and can really skew our decision making and, and strategic thinking as leaders. Um, I think you know Sam Crome, uh, who writes a case study in the book, talks about having regular temperature checks. So checking in with things on the ground um, and seeing how things really are, uh, you know, outside of these, you know, little kind of observations or whatever learning walks, whatever it might be. Um, and I think in addition to that, it's about um, leaders really being on the ground with the teachers, you know, having their teacher hat on and having their leader hat on as well, so that they can be grappling with some of the same challenges that their teachers are and those they lead are. Um, and I think that's really important. I mean, the open door policy, great example, you know, lots of people, we have an open door policy. Um, and there's this great visual where there's like a, a cactus on the door handle. Yeah, we have an open door policy, but you're going to get burnt if you open the door. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it is about, I think, regular temp temperature checks, having really open and honest conversations. But also, I think, in order to achieve that, there's so much stuff that comes before that, I think it's quite easy for me to say have an on open and honest conversation. But actually, if a teacher feels like they can't really say what they're thinking, because they're worried that it will lead to x, y, and z. And I think that's where this psychological safety piece comes in. And things like leaders being quite vulnerable about their own learning, their own decision making, their own lessons learned can be quite valuable in terms of modeling to teachers that actually leaders get it wrong um, and leaders are still learning and leaders are on that journey. And therefore, it's OK to be on a journey and be getting, you know, getting it wrong and working with it and playing with it and trying to get to um, a better place. So I think there's so many things that leaders can do. But and I think inherently leaders try to do a lot of this in their day to day working ways. I don't think that any leader sits there thinking I'm not going to I don't want a good culture. I think there's always that really great uh, intent. I think that if we have that kind of more sharper awareness around some of these strands, then maybe when as leaders we're planning or we're strategically thinking about implementation, we can actually plan in some really concrete uh, actions that can open up conversations. Um, and I'm a massive fan of like the leadership 360 model where leaders can get some really um, great feedback from lots of different people within an organization, um, anonymous feedback comes to the leader they can then see the difference between their assessment of where they are on particular strands and where people who are they are actually serving think they are on different strands and see the kind of the gap between that and I, I recently did one and it was probably one of the best bits of professional development I've had um, and, and has supported me in trying to understand how I can serve those I'm leading better. <laughs> My experience of the 360 was feeling great because I've got some nice feedback but then my chair of governors basically dismissing it saying well you only asked people that you knew would give you a good response <laughs> I thought I hadn't I thought I'd asked a range of people but she was skeptical and and therefore trashed the whole thing so I thought okay well that wasn't very helpful <laughs> it was, but, but it was interesting you know it was interesting how different different people like perceive you and you have to be ready for it though don't you you know you have to be ready for the feedback on that yeah, I think you do. And I think it feels very personal and that can be quite intimidating and scary. Um, so, yeah, I think you do need to be ready for that. And I think you should be seeking out your critics and you should be seeking feedback from them. And although that is a really uncomfortable thing to do, I think it's, you know, the best way to find all of those holes in your implementation plan ahead of going out to the entire staff and saying, 
this is what we're going to do now. Well, actually, what are the things that teachers know are not going to work in advance before you even go to implement whatever it is um, and trying to kind of beat them to the punch and actually really have that information and really stress test your thinking before you go out there and, and share it more widely. So, like, you know, the seven strands that you've got, would yeah. you kind of advocate for leaders potentially using those as a way of identifying their blind spots in terms of what they think's going on, but actually what they might not have considered yet? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's definitely worth a conversation. I recently did a session with a, an SLT of a school on the on the book um, and we were just having loads of conversation around it. And we went around the table and there were leaders who had been there for seven years and leaders who had been there for seven months. Um, and it was really interesting as we went around the table, you know, what their perception of the culture was and how as we went around, we were piecing this kind of jigsaw together around how psychologically safe staff felt. So I think, you know, I, it's not um, a strict framework as such, but I definitely think it's worth leaders coming together and just reflecting on these strands and thinking, OK, how often are we rethinking or when something goes wrong, how often are we taking the time to actually unpick why it went wrong so that we can avoid some of that in the future? Um, and I think because of the breakneck pace that things happen in schools, it's 100 miles an hour. We don't often get the time or protect the time or carve out the time or get the luxury of time <laughs> to do those things. But actually, if we can protect some time to do that, I think it can just help with that continuous improvement and I think it does need to be modeled really heavily from from the top down I think if your head teacher your senior leaders can be modeling this stuff in their everyday ways of working that's really what's going to make the biggest difference in terms of those becoming the norms with which the team kind of operate yeah and I think that's really you know important to think talk that about that explicitly as a team but I, I think it's important to recognize how hard that can be mm -hmm. so with people who, who are well-intentioned I mean, I'm just picturing the schools I've been in SLTs of, you know, a few of them. And, you know, <laughs> the occasional emotional thing happens. People have crosswords or sometimes people think they've given really good feedback and discussion with someone. And then you hear via another route that they felt like totally patronised by it or um, told off by it or undermined by it. And you can gosh, you know, that person didn't realise they were doing that, but that's how it was. And, and then that one person's experience is like the staff room kind of everyone hears about that and so mm -hmm. you think okay so getting that right where every interaction has this sort of culture of um, psychological safety and people being able to admit mistakes and all of that you almost have to make an explicit goal to model almost scrupulously good behavior in every interaction adult to adult because otherwise it's you know little things happen and when it's tense and people are under pressure so it's, it's I, I think it's so it's great to be discussing it I just I just I'm thinking of so many scenarios where I think whoa okay yeah and you're reliving things from your past Tom you just kind of <laughs> sometimes like being the mediator so sometimes you know um you know dealing with previous cultures people's had a bad experience in the past say and then so they're assuming the worst I remember having a real dilemma with someone who <laughs> she, I, I want to have a meeting. So it, I found out I, if I if I went to see her and say hi, you know, can we have a chat about something? She go, what? Are, why are you here? Like <laughs> you can't just spring it on me. You can't just spring it on me like that. And I'd say, okay, so okay, that doesn't work. So the next time I'd say to her, uh, I'd email and say, just just casually, and you know, if we've got a chat sometime. And she say, well, what's it about? 
Um, and then she, she'd be at my door five minutes later saying, you can't just email me. And now I'm all worried. What, what have I done? Wrong? <laughs> oh my God. That's a really good example, I think, of kind of culture building in the in the most granular sense because cultures come about from really small interactions it's not the big sweeping inset days where we talk about vision and culture and ethos it's the very small interactions and knowing your people and so you know having that interaction with that colleague who gets really nervous and doesn't you know doesn't know what you're going to be talking about taking that forward and be you know dropping them an email I'm going to come and speak to you about this at this time just to avoid that kind of anxious feeling that they have and those small interactions I think make the biggest difference when people have recognized that you've taken some learning about who they are and how they operate and fold that into your ways of working um but yeah it, I mean that's the one thing I was very nervous about this book was writing it and it it makes it look and sound really easy and it's not it's very very complex and very messy and it involves people who are very naturally have different dispositions and different values and beliefs and assumptions so um I think it is it is really tricky and find and I think finding little things that you can do as a leader so one thing that I've been trying to do lately is if I do a CPD session or I have a conversation with it with a leadership team or a principal I'll often come back to them maybe like 24 hours later and you know and say how did that land for you like how did that session land for you? What was the key message that I left you with? Just to check, is that the same as what I intended for it to be? Because actually that's, you know, that's a really big thing where I can sometimes go in as a leader going, yeah, that's exactly what I did. And I said this and the interpretation of it can be so different. So Mm. I guess, yeah, little check-ins, little interactions. And I think those little interactions become really cumulative over time and create these ways of working and and cultures. So that's a really good example, actually. But yeah, it is, it's a messy business and culture is very hard to pin down in general. So it's a tricky thing to be thinking about and writing about for sure. Mind the Gap is produced in association with Haringey Education and Partnership. HEP is a school-zone, schools-led school improvement company, supporting you to provide children and young people with the best possible start in life. If you're interested in hearing more about HEP, follow the link in the show notes. If you you move to a new environment as a leader, and you inherit a culture that is not particularly positive, not particularly helpful, lots of people feeling a bit fearful or um, without agency or just the whole culture just feels off. How do you go about changing that? And I know you said it's kind of small steps, but if you were, if you were kind of parachuted into that situation, yeah. where would you start? Because lots of people will join schools and in, in interviews, everything looks rosy and everything looks lovely. It's a bit like when you buy a house and it all looks beautiful on right move. And then you go in and then you find out the door's wobbly and this creaks and that does that. So when you go in, you find that it's not perfect or as, as lovely as you thought it was going to be. What do you do? Where do you start? Uh, that's a really good question, and I'm I'm glad you asked because I've been in in very similar situations in, in leadership careers. So I can talk a little bit about that and a little bit about some stuff from the book. Um, 
I think one thing that's really important if you're a new leader going into what what is a you know hostile or maybe difficult challenging kind of context or culture I think it's really important you get to know the culture before you go in with your ideas about how to change it um I think understanding what's already there and what's been and gone and the history and the story up until this point can really inform your thinking and and your um, I guess your strategy around how you can start establishing really positive cultures. So things like having one-to-one conversations with absolutely everyone and just getting their view on it. So you can, again can start uh, piecing together this wider picture, this jigsaw puzzle of where things are, why they've got here, how people are feeling about that and what their lived experience is. And I think that is useful in terms of making people feel seen and heard, which I think is fundamentally a really important thing that leaders um, need to be considering, I would say. Um, But also it gives you the opportunity to kind of, it informs your thinking and and your strategy around how you can then go about making um, those positive changes. So that is definitely an element of that. Um, But I, I think there is, I always say this when I speak about the book, the other piece in here that I wish I had put in is a culture of high expectation, which is kind of peppered through the other strands. But actually, leaders um, sharing a vision and sharing a way forward that's really aspirational that that gives people the hope that things can get better and to have the optimism and in particularly in those really challenging cultures and circumstances to be able to say actually there's a there's a better way and there's a better possibility and we can work towards that and we are going to get there Um, I think that element is really, really important. So, you know, Mary Might talks about high challenge, um, low threat when it comes to pupil learning. I think the exact same applies for adults, right? We want that environment of really high challenge, high aspiration, but I'm going to support you to absolutely get there. Um, and, And so it's kind of wanting better for everyone and wanting better for the school and communicating that really clearly when you're in the early very early days to say actually I'm here because I want to go to bat for you and I want to be here to make things better for you and for us as a team um and and acknowledging what the existing challenges are and the existing kind of state of play is I think that's really really important I think a big um not mistake but I think and I don't think again it's done with any sort of ill intention when a new leader comes in and right right this is it we are good to go and I'm going to do x y and z and it's going to we're going to be amazing we're going to be outstanding by this and (laughs) you know it's all very well intentioned but it almost makes someone sit there and go well what have I been doing for the last five years here then like am I you know but I've been working really hard and I've been trying really hard and it's yeah so I think it's important recognition of the existing culture what the conditions are that have been making it work not so well um and then having those conversations informing a real strategy around that and then thinking right I need to improve x y and z um whether it's curriculum or assessment whatever it is but at the same time I need to think about these specific strands that are going to really support people to get there one of the things I feel like I guess I mean I can say this because I I can say what I like I suppose but there's a kind of sensitivity around this stuff One, one of the things I feel irritates me every year is the kind of annual big up of the schools that are the sort of the outliers. And I always feel like they get way too much attention. So I'm not going to mention the, but ne- nearly all of them are schools which were new, like they started as a new academy or a new free school or something. And they could say like, this is what we're going to do. Um, come come to our school. This is what it is. You know, here, this is this is where we, this is our vision, philosophy. This is how we do behavior management. And you kind of come, come or don't come <laughs> kind of, 
it's setting up the stall from the beginning. And it's the same to all the parents. And those schools, you know, but what the schools that impress me most, much more than those schools, are the ones where they they use the, they have the same community, the same kids, the same teachers, and they went on a journey mm. because it's much, much harder. You, know, you arrive at a school which is maybe in a downward spiral of confidence and expectations, and, and you pick that up. Mm-hmm. Or a range of teachers from people who have just started, from people who have been there 30 years, age profile, kids with bad habits from a regime which has kind of lost its mojo a bit. That's the biggest thing. And the culture shift you've got to engineer there is a is an absolute beast to manage. And when people one school succeed in that, I just want to punch the air. It's like it's brilliant. And they never get the attention they deserve. I that's what I feel. That's very true. And you know, I think sometimes the misconception around culture is there's one culture, but when you're leading a team, it's like you're leading lots of mini cultures because you've got your little tribes within your tribe. Um, and so, yeah, it's really complex to kind of unpick those and, and where it, where there's really long-standing kind of legacy culture there to change that, to challenge that, to to kind of move that forward. It's a massive win. It's a really massive win because it, it, it is kind of like, and a leader once said to me, culture is a bit like geology. It's really slow over a long period of time. And actually it takes a lot of work that goes into that. And having worked in a school like that um, and and actually, yeah, you know, it was a school that was special measures for 13 years before it, it moved to a good, the feeling of satisfaction and belonging and the culture that we, you know, were able to go on to create under some really great leadership, that was just phenomenal and felt amazing. And it was a place we all wanted to be because the work was meaningful and the culture had been set really well by the principal we were working for and the senior leadership team. Um, And I feel like that's why people stay in schools because they're in a part of something amazing. They have that sense of belonging. They feel that sense of purpose. So if we can try to cultivate more of that, I feel like we'd keep teachers in schools, which was where we want them. All I could think of then, Tom, when you were talking about that is, you know, the repair shop where they've got that thing that's all broken down, but very much loved. And they get this expert to come in and tinker with it, retain its original beauty, but bring it back to its former glory. As you were talking about that, that's all I could think about was actually you're more impressed by the repair shop than a new build. (laughs) Yeah, wow. (laughs) Well, it's maybe, I mean, but I, I, I just have such deep respect for people who are in a school, they've been there 20 years. And they've seen a few heads come and go. And you think, well, you you are the school. You make the school. And anyone who comes in, I better show you some respect because whatever they think of your teaching and in a judgmental sense, that doesn't matter. They, they, they need to make you feel rewarded for your service and then support you on a journey of improvement. And the culture you need to have where that teacher says, you know what, okay, I'm up for it then, rather than keep out of my area. <laughs> You mentioned something there, which, like, which I was going to ask you about, because to me, this is just like the most, for me, the most fascinating and kind of evident thing when I see when I visit schools is what you you call them like, like tribes in a tribe. Like, um, and when I, I remember, now, I don't know if this has been updated or if it's an official term, but they're kind of well, in the 90s when I was doing my uh, master's that I didn't finish. Um, we, we, we were talking a lot about subcultures and mm. 
culture really being the sum of many cultures in a school. And and I, that's always stuck with me. So when you scan a sort of, you go to a primary school and, you know, it it doesn't take long before the early years team will tell you who they are. You know, like, because they they spend their whole life being irritated by whole school CPD, which it doesn't quite apply to continuous provision. And they're like naturally a bit sceptical of what anyone's going to tell them until they feel value. So they kind of, there's a culture of kind of specialness there. And, you know, you know, you, you you chip in if you think I'm wrong about that. But it's in a secondary school, every team thinks they're slightly special. <laughs> you, know, like, um, you know, PE is definitely different. Um, art is definitely different. Well, this is maths, you know. <laughs> and, well, in English, you know, it's not quite like that for us. So what you realise is that each team has this kind of beautiful identity. They, they feel part of this little team. And that's their real identity. More than the school, often it's their part of the school. Mm-hmm. And then the head is trying to manage multiple teams, essentially, with all their little cultures. And you never know exactly what goes on in that team office because it's kind of like behind closed doors. That's yeah. the culture that you're really dealing with. I mean, do you see that in your own schools or, or when you visit them in your trust? Do you, do, do, you, do you pick up on all this stuff? Yeah, and I think it's quite a common thing across most schools, to be honest. I think, um, you know, there are these kind of mini cultures within within an entire school that, and I think that's part of the, the kind of challenge that leaders have is to have this sense of purpose that kind of cuts through every team, you know, this kind of stick of rock sense of purpose. This is what we're about. This is how we do things. And there will be kind of variations of that within these teams, and there will be different takes on that slightly. Um, and in the book, I talk about um, Dan Pink, who talks about small P purpose and big P purpose. So that idea that big P purpose is like your overarching, aspirational, big purpose as a school. And your small P purpose is about your your individual contribution to that purpose. And that might be slightly different, but, you know, it's about getting the alignment between those so that those mini teams, you know, still have that sense of belonging to a bigger picture. And and that has huge implications um, on curriculum because, you know, in a primary school, what we really want our teachers to be thinking is that, you know, it's this big picture EYFS to year six piece rather than, you know, it's year six sats and I'm the year six teacher. So I'm responsible for the entire, you know, success of this entire school or the EYFS feeling slightly left out of that, that, you know, long sequence, that that learning journey of a pupil that walks through the door in reception and leads at year six. Um, so I think having that overarching sense of purpose and, and knowing those teams and what they're about and what their passions are and what their individual challenges are. Um, the EYFS is quite a common one that I see, which is, you know, CPD does, is not pitched to the EYFS team, but yet they're there, sat there for an hour every week. Um, so thinking about, you know, more practically, how can we have bespoke training that's um, applicable to to teams, but also what are those core bits of CPD that everyone can be involved in so that we still have that sense of togetherness, belonging and um, being on the same page when it comes to the overarching kind of school direction of travel. Like, where are we going as a school? Am I, am I describing, is that ca- capture? Do we, do we capture what you see, Emma? Yes. And those year six teachers are a breed of their own. <laughs> <laughs> that well, like a sub sub team potentially of one sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? 
Yeah. Well, it is because you're the one that then deals with transition to secondary. So you're kind of bridging the gap between primary and secondary. You've always got one eye on the the results. You've you've got kind of you're trying to look back in the rearview mirror and see like the cohorts that are coming through. It's it year six is a is a unique beast in primary, yeah. and one in which once you get in it, you're never allowed to get out of it. <laughs> Very true, Emma. I think I was there for like seven years. <laughs> Just didn't leave. <laughs> but solidarity, seven years straight as well. <laughs> the battle scars are there. <laughs> I think it's, what I think is interesting though is that sometimes people say things to me like, oh, well, a typical maths department, that's what they're like. And I just say, well, no, I, I don't see that. See, I, I've been in lots of schools and I would say those sort of stereotypes never really apply. Um, so, you, I mean, they, and because they, you know it's about specific individuals but what i do think is interesting is this is this is something which i read about it in theory and then i see it played out is it was reported on by harry fletcher wood a few years ago a whole series of blogs about why cpd doesn't work and one of the studies he cites is about the role of team culture in uh in and, and the, in cpd so for example if you're in a team and it could be the year three team or early years or the maths department or the PE department if your team culture when you're in your office together is this is all basically rubbish isn't it it's got nothing to do with us they're wasting our time we don't really need this um, if that's the culture you're in the kind of it's really hard to break out of that that's a whole mindset of backs to the wall you know put the circle the wagons whatever the the, the, the thing is if the culture is can do right we're up for it let's do this let's do that how about we all do this and there's a kind of motivational force that comes from the team leader and everyone's up for it then you get traction and movement yeah and i think it's really worth it i mean i i've said that to whole teams of teachers in the room saying that's the culture that you're in whether you're aware of it or not so what's yours like you know are you aware of your team's culture around willingness to engage with ideas and try them out yeah, it's that that is a really interesting one. And I think, yeah, I, I mean, I would encourage teams to just get together and just have a conversation. What is the culture of our team? And if we were to leave this team and go tell another team about what we're about, what would we say? Um, because I think that's a really interesting one to unpick. And, you know, for a principle that the challenge then is to unpick and unpack what are those different stories? You know, what are those different beliefs around um, CPD, whatever it might be? within this and how you know where there might where that might be causing a barrier in terms of whole school movement forward how can I work with this team and engage with this team to try and understand where that's coming from um so again a lot you know a lot of this comes down to conversations and inter those small interactions and and getting a sense of people and being on the ground I think I feel like if you're stuck in an office doing admin answering a billion emails you just can't you can't be seeing what's happening. You can't, you don't have a real sense of it. And then you're making decisions that just don't last or, or, or stay afloat because you're you're making them on the basis of thinking that everything's hunky-dory when it's potentially not. It's amazing how far-reaching culture can be as well. Because obviously we deliver a lot of training and you know yourself, you've got a room full of people, potentially multiple schools represented there. And you can see straight away those where as people are coming from a school where they're really engaged with thinking, they really want to share, they really want to um, talk about their ideas, are so positive about it. And other people come in and they sit there and you, you can see, you know, you're either not engaged with this or you've been sent, inverted commas. 
And it's it's so interesting that the reach of the culture is not even just confined to the the walls of the the school or the you know the the perimeter fence. That actually it can go outside into kind of external training and interactions with colleagues from across the sector. And it's so wonderful when you do work with colleagues who are so positive and so outward facing, and so willing to share ideas, it makes such a difference to then the culture of the CPD in the room. So it's that kind of uh, the, the reach of it that I find absolutely fascinating as well, that it's not just in the confines of the office or the staff room or the perimeter fence, but it's then it kind of leaches or leaks into the profession as a whole, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's that kind of emotional contagion, right? Like if you're hanging yes. around really upbeat, positive people, that is absolutely what you get. And, you, you know, that you, we all have, know a colleague or have worked with a colleague where um, potentially you know not as upbeat and you just leave you feel really kind of oh, yourself and it's just that kind of like yeah and trying to create that and, and actually that's really hard as a leader to do because leadership is really hard so if you've had a really rough few days and you've had governors followed by parents evening followed by a bunch of other things and you've had some parents and whatever having to kind of self-manage that's that's really tricky and then walk out and be smiling and yeah we're good and we've got this that's a that's a really tricky thing to do. And I think things like supervision are really important for leaders to give them the opportunity to go have, you know, vent their emotions, feel like they've had that conversation about um, how they're feeling and then be able to re-engage with others. It seems like you have to be yourself, don't you? So this is one of the things I feel like so interesting about culture, leadership, is, is you know, you, so schools, I mean, this is uh, this is probably not, not I'm about to say something which is probably absolute nonsense, but I, I sort of feel like schools and after, after a while uh, can start sort of adopting the characteristics of the leadership um, unless this culture is so embedded. So when I was the head of a grammar school, I never felt that was the case. I always felt like I was the temporary custodian of the school and then I gave it back. And then my goal was to not stuff it up. <laughs> I remember my wife saying to me, look, it's one of the highest performing schools in the country. Don't mess it up. <laughs> like, <laughs> no pressure. No pressure, Tom. <laughs> and and that, that was true in the days of, uh, you know, just measuring raw outcomes. Mm. But yeah, I mean, there has some traditions which are so, so strong. It, you, you could barely um, barely break them because you know you were going to sing Jerusalem at the end of term and it was brilliant and why would you ever change it and I had to wear a gown in assembly which is kind of mad but um, I go to some schools and I feel like they're a bit like a comfy jumper you know it's a bit messy um, you know there's stuff everywhere and no one seems to mind and it feels cozy and nice and everyone's lovely and it's got this kind of cozy loveliness to it with some rough rant, rough edges, <laughs> and you go to another school and it's like regime, tight, organized, punchy. Everyone's like on it, and it feels a bit sort of regimey. But that's what they're like, and that's everyone's. Now people could be totally happy in both of those two different schools, but they are different types of schools. <laughs> and I feel like you have to sort of. That's all right, isn't it? I mean, schools ought to be able. We ought to have like tolerance for some variation. I think so and every school is unique right and has its own story and its own history that makes it entirely different to any other school so I think 
Yeah, and I I, th- I think that culture, the main thing I feel is that it should be co-constructed, right? It shouldn't be something that's imposed on others from a, a particular leader's ideology of what it should be like. It should be something that we co-construct together because we feel like this is this is the right fit for our pupils and serving this community. So yeah, I quite like going into different schools within my trust and seeing those variations in in how it feels and the culture and how things are done. And I think that's absolutely kind of right. And it should be very context considerate. And I think we'd be taking a lot of the beauty and joy out out of schools if we kind of expected it to be one kind of way, which I think, yeah, I think it's important to have that variation for sure. That's that's my quote of the of the of the thing that culture should be co-constructed. The Sharma Seven. <laughs> It'll be really embarrassing if it's not seven now because I actually I, I don't know for sure. Hand on heart, is it seven? I'm pretty sure. I think there's eight sections and one's the introduction and one collective wisdom. So I think that takes us down to six. <laughs> I haven't got my glasses on, so I can't confirm or deny. We're we're an accurate bunch, aren't we? <laughs> but I think I mentioned I've mentioned this before because it, it 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 was a thing which happened and I probably it's a while ago so it, it won't be too repetitive. But when my kids went to school and they got a new head teacher and I think it's I'm going to say this that when the head teacher arrived we had an email as parents before the school even opened telling us what the school vision was going to be in some detail and we were thinking well aren't you going to ask us first you know, like, it just seems that's the weirdest thing to do to arrive to a new school and email everyone telling them the your vision for the school in like in in, in with this acronym that was there and all this stuff and thinking what yeah. it's all based about an, an analogy of a ship and i'm thinking really yeah. a ship like what is this and it all seems so from that day on i just thought well you weren't really interested in the parents and the community you were there to serve you you weren't you were never interested in that and i felt like that was irritating um yeah. but uh, we're going to run out of time soon. so i want to ask you about something else briefly on this whole thing it's about trust because one of the things that comes up a lot in in discussions about teachers is that te- trust and we should be, teachers should be trusted and sometimes leaders say things like i trust my staff and um, what's your feeling my feeling about that is that Trust has to be is a is a bit of a harder edge than just hey I trust you. Trust has to be based on delivery, doesn't it? Like I trust you because you do a good job, not because I don't care how well you do. Don't you think? I mean, I feel like there's an edge to trust. Absolutely, and one of the things that um, I kind of talk about in the book that has come from Professor Coe's um, report around school leadership is that idea that competency is really important when it comes to trust. Right? We trust people who know their stuff we trust people who we feel secure with because they've got a good handle on whatever it is that they're doing whether they're leading us or in classrooms so absolutely I think that's a really big part of trust is that that competence piece and I think um you know blind trust is is probably not the way to go um but yeah again that again I think it comes back to you you can't um comment on what you don't know so I think leaders need to know their teachers really well and you know one learning walk a week, I wouldn't say is sufficient to knowing your teachers, but really engaging in conversations with them and, you know, getting getting your sleeves rolled up and getting involved in some of the stuff around planning and whatever it might be, having those conversations, um, you can start unearthing the, the competency piece, you can start unearthing and building that trust because it's also very relational. It's about being together and having honest conversations and being vulnerable with each other. So 
yeah, I think competency is a massive part of trust. And and I, that's the other point I think is quite important to make around culture that it's not just about having happy schools that feel very fluffy and feel very nice. I think that needs to be paired with really strong domain specific knowledge about whatever it is you're leading. Um, I think one without the other is quite problematic um, in terms of the longevity of the work that you do. Yeah, curriculum being one of them, Emma. <laughs> yes. But we've got to wrap it up. That's another 45 minutes left. I'll lake it back on again. <laughs> well, I think that's fantastic. I mean, you summed that up so brilliantly there. It's relational, it's it's based on competency. And you know, you can't just rock up and say, trust me, you're gonna say, Don't I'm gonna earn your trust because I'm gonna show you I'm competent and capable and I do listen and I do. I do have stuff I can offer you. When I come into your classroom and I talk to you afterwards, I'm going to prove myself by helping you, mm-hmm. by showing you I, am, I understand the problems you have. And that type of thing in coaching terms and and, and so on is, is, is key. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, look, Laker, it's wow, amazing. So look, I'm going to say, look, people who are listening, get yourself a copy of Building Culture. Um, we are we are no longer sponsored by John Cat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. We 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 we've loved that book ever since it came out. We've been dying to speak to you, but that was it's so lovely to, to hear your your thoughts on all this stuff. And uh, well done for what you're doing. And I can't wait to follow you and and the work you do with curriculum as well. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Lake. Can I just do? Can you just tell people about your tweet you did today about where you're speaking? Because that's quite a big deal. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I'm going to be speaking at the World Education Summit, which is really exciting, about building culture, some of the key threads and themes from the book. And I am really, really excited. I'm very, very privileged to be speaking amongst an amazing lineup of educators. The World Education Summit. I've never been asked to speak there. That sounds like they're kind of the, that sounds like that's only for special people. <laughs> They'll be knocking on your door next time. <laughs> that's, like the, that's, that's, like, that's like for the kings of the hill, the kings and queens of the hill. <laughs> Well, on that note, uh, thank you so much. Thanks to Leica. Um, Thank you to everyone listening. Um, Great to be back on the airwaves and uh, we'll, we'll see you really soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Mind the Gap. I'm Emma Turner and I've been presenting with my co-host Tom Sherrington. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, share on social media and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on our YouTube channel, search Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma or head over to Spotify for an audio version. This podcast was produced in association with Haringey Education Partnership and our producer for today's episode was Luke Kemper.